stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Okay, so it seems like a pretty simple question. What is true and how do we know something to be true? Two plus two is four, right? We know that. I suppose we could evoke uh, the Orwell book, 1984, where uh, two plus two wasn't always four. But we know that it is. But I suppose reality, life gets a little more complex than that. And it can be difficult to know what's true for a lot of different reasons. So this interesting new book that I, I think is, is largely aimed at helping people navigate all of this. And it takes an interesting look at breaking this, this issue down into two different categories here almost. And we saw an example of that earlier today. A caller cites some, some polling that had been done on regarding abortion. I pointed to some other polling that had been done that showed something opposite. Well, clearly that's not true then. So there is that side of it where I think people have decided ahead of time what they believe to be true and look for not evidence that might question what they believe, but evidence rather to confirm what they already believe. So I think there is that we encounter. But I wanted to get into this. Joining us to talk about his new book, which is called Truth, How the Many Sides of Every Story Shape Our Reality. Very pleased to welcome to the program best-selling author, Hector McDonald. Hector, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be on it. It's interesting. Uh, the, the very first words the readers are going to encounter in this book is that this book looks forward to a backlash. Is this a provocative subject? <laughs> well, I think I wrote that in the prologue, which, of course, is one of the last things you write in a book like that, because I think it was important to address the fact that we're, you know, we're, we're living through this extraordinary post-truth age where everyone is thinking about alternative facts and fake news and so on. And all of that, I would contend, is essentially different, different words for falsehoods and lies, which is really not so much what the book is about. I'm looking at truth in, in all its forms, but not, you know, not alternative facts. I'm looking at the many different ways in which we use truth and always have used truth for constructive means, but also, of course, to mislead. Well, why is, why is such a book needed? I think because um, as we enter an age of kind of a fragmented media landscape where increasingly there are no gatekeepers anymore. No one's there. You know, the BBC, the New York Times are no longer able to kind of curate what's true and what's not. Each of us needs a much greater kind of grasp on what truth is, uh, how it can be used rather flexibly and, and, and cunningly to pull the wool over our eyes and give us a false impression of reality. So I think uh, it's important for us all to take a better interest, a closer interest in exactly what people are saying and what they might be, what their agenda might be, what they might be trying to convey and persuade us to believe with the, the different forms of the truth that they employ. We like to think of truth as a simple thing. I mean, something's either true or it's not, which I guess in its own way is a true statement. But as you point out in the book, reality is, is complicated. That's right. Um, I was partly inspired in this by a, an advertisement we had in England many years ago for the Guardian newspaper, which was called Points of View. And they ran a very neat uh, set of three scenarios, um, essentially camera angles of the same scene, which showed you three very different versions of reality, depending on 
what you were looking at and, and, and what you were focusing on. And I think that really underscored for me the flexibility of truth. We, there is, of course, for most, most factual things at least, there is a, an absolute truth. But generally when we talk about it, we only, we only kind of convey a part of that truth. We only describe a fraction of the truth around us whenever we, whenever we talk or write. And so what I wanted to get across in the book was that the complexity of, of so many of the things we talk about and write about means that whether we want to or not, we're only giving a, a, a small sample of that truth at any one time. Well, but I mean, it's it's not hopeless. I, I, some of it might come across as almost pessimistic that, that we're we're stuck in our ways, that we, we do that. We we look for information to back up what we already believe. We, we live in these, these kind of bubbles where um, these, these views get reinforced and we're convinced that what we believe is the truth and what the other side believes is, is lies. Does it necessarily have to be that way? Uh, well, the, 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 the filter bubble phenomenon is a, is a particularly worrying aspect of our, of our modern age. I think you asked, does it, does it have to be that way? I think there are ways in which the, the social media platforms we're using, the search engines we're using, could try to steer us a little bit away from our comfort zones, from our, from our filter bubbles. But uh, really it comes down to each of us starting to, to, to take on board the responsibility to, to look and see what else is out there, what other um, possible interpretations of, of reality are there which we're not looking at. So one important way to look at this is to think, how do I feel about um, a message I've heard. If, if I read an article or if I hear something on TV or see something on Facebook, does that piece of information, that piece of news make me feel good and therefore I'm more inclined to go, yeah, I agree with that, it must, must be true? Or does it kind of make me feel like, you know, uh, angry and annoyed, in which case I'm more likely to just ignore it or, or, or deny the truth of it? And I think when we start to understand our emotional response to the messages around us, that gives us a signal that maybe we should think a little harder about whether something is true or at least is the whole truth. And, you know, if we find ourselves too easily pleased by some message we read or hear, maybe we should say, well, okay, is there another angle I'm not considering here before I just accept this as the truth because it, it, it you know, aligns with my political biases. You talk about uh, subjective truths in the book, which I guess would be distinguishable from objective truth. Two plus two is four, for example. So what, where, where do we cross that line into subjective truths? That's right. What I was trying to do was capture the, 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 the truth, if you like, that uh, there is more to our communications, more to the, our life than, than mere facts. So, for example, a simple example of a, of, a, of a subjective truth is financial value. You know, how much is an object worth? How much is that meal worth? Well, that depends on what time of day you happen to have it. That depends on whether you've just eaten something. That depends on whether you're a vegetarian and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a meat you know, dish that you're being offered. So financial value is a, is a subjective element of, of, of our, you know, our decision-making, along with things like um, moral truths and truths about whether or not we think something is desirable. If a food critic says this is an excellent restaurant, that's a subjective truth that I will accept because, you know, he or she is an expert in the field and I will go along with their recommendation. Um, but, of course, none of these things are facts. They're, 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 they're simply judgments made potentially with a great deal of expertise, but judgments nonetheless. 
history, I, I think to some people, would be seen as an objective truth. I mean, I, I could state with certainty I was born on a certain day, at a certain time, in a certain place. That's an objective truth. But, but history, maybe like reality itself, is, is complicated, isn't it? That's right. And, and, and one of the reasons the history is so complicated is because there's an awful lot of it. And as, as, as we discussed earlier, when we come to record and report on history, we can only ever report on tiny fractions of it at any one time, which gives us the opportunity to leave out all the inconvenient bits, uh, selectively prioritize and focus on the bits that are favorable to our present day agendas. Uh, so, for example, like in, in my book, Truth, I cite the example of um, the Israeli textbooks, which don't mention the Nakba, the famous catastrophe that saw um, many hundreds of thousands, I believe it was, Palestinians forced from their homes in 1948. And it's understandable they leave this out of their textbooks. It's, it's not a nice way to describe the founding of a nation. But nevertheless, it is a, a distortion of history. Um, and I think we, we do this also in our own personal lives, don't we, where we whether it's our resumes or our Facebook feeds, when we talk about things that we've done or that have happened to us, we tend to, whether consciously or subconsciously, focus only on the things that maybe make us look good or present well professionally or whatever it may be. We don't tend to focus on the times that we got something wrong at work or the, you know, the, the times that we were a bit mean in a relationship or whatever it may be. We tend, to, we tend to be very good at selecting those parts of our personal histories, just as states and businesses are at selecting their professional histories, um, at editing history to suit a current agenda. Well, Hector, let me get you to stand by here on, on that note, because when I come back, I want to pick up on that point, too, and, and how that, that link between how we perceive the past impacts how we perceive what's true in the here and now. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Hector McDonald. His new book is called Truth, How the Many Sides to Every Story Shape Our Reality. We're back with more right after this. Well, the topic of truth, we're in conversation uh, with bestselling author Hector McDonald. His latest book is called Truth, How the Many Sides to Every Story Shape Our Reality. Uh, and, and, you know, you're talking before the break, Hector, about how history plays a role here. And, and I guess the point about how we perceive the past, I mean, that really does, I, I think in a lot of ways, doesn't it, really affect how we perceive truth in the present? That's right. So in the book, I give the example of the invention of Fanta, which is Coca-Cola's second most important international brand. I need to be a little bit careful from a legal point of view here and how I describe the story. But uh, the facts are these. Fanta was invented in wartime Germany, um, and it was invented because there was a blockade on which stopped the, the German arm of Coca-Cola from obtaining um, the necessary ingredients for Coca-Cola. So they cast around for other ingredients, which included things like um, leftovers of apples and, 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 and whey. And they put these together into a new drink they called Fanta, which comes from the German for uh, fantasy for imagination. Um, and I think that's a, it's a brilliant story of innovation and you know, triumph over the odds and, 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 and kind of clever um, corporate um, you know, engineering design. But uh, it's, it's been completely omitted from uh, Coca-Cola's official history, uh, which they published a booklet in 2011 to mark 125 years of, of, of Coca-Cola. And the first mention Fanta gets is in 1955, I believe it is, so 15 years after it was invented. Um, one can understand why Coke doesn't want to mention the fact that, you know, this vital brand of it, it was, you know, associated with Nazi Germany. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, it was. And, uh, and it gives us a, a slightly different impression, perhaps, of that brand and that company today. 
You also delve into the realm of statistics, which is is quite fascinating because I think maybe we equate statistics with math. I mean, if two plus two is four, and that's an objective truth, we can we can use statistics, we can use numbers to to establish other things as similarly true. But it's it's not quite that simple, is it? That's right. So. Um uh, one can do all kinds of things with numbers to make them look bigger or smaller than they actually are or to show how numerical trends are you know, going up or down faster or slower than you might otherwise think. Um, we do this by using relative numbers, for example, or absolute numbers, depending on which gives the better impression. Uh, we can um, change the axes on graphs to make things look different. We can use cumulative graphs rather than regular graphs to, 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 to make numbers look different. When it comes to um, statistics, one of the examples I like best in the book is um, the average. And of course, you know, newspapers and media commentators and politicians are always talking about the average wage or the average um, amount of time you have to wait for a hospital appointment or whatever it may be. They never talk about the mean or the median, which are two completely different forms of the average, but uh, these give very different numbers. Um, probably don't want to you know, bore your listeners by talking about what the difference is between the two, but essentially what this means is that a politician in Britain a couple of years ago could have claimed that um, a teacher on a salary of £28,000 a year was being paid above the national average, and another politician could have claimed that the same teacher was being paid below the national average, just depending on which average they happen to be referring to. But, of course, most people don't know the difference necessarily between mean and median or wouldn't stop to think they were talking about different averages. And so both politicians get away with their spin on the truth. And politicians are are good at that, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) They can be. They can be. I particularly liked um, uh, one of your um, favorite politicians, Rob Ford, for the the, the quote he came out with. um, Perhaps you remember it better than me, um, about... uh, about I didn't lie, I wasn't lying, you just didn't ask the right, right. question. Yes, and, uh, yes we recall that. I think is, that I think is, a, you know, that sums it up. He was being very careful to mislead reporters about his habit um, with the truth, but very careful, as a politician usually is, not to lie. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, obviously, then, in the realm of politics, it gets us into, and you talk about predictions in the book, because... You know, that that so-and-so's policies are going to lead to great things. So-and-so's policies are going to be a disaster. So-and-so's policies are going to lead us into war. I mean, climate change is a big issue. We need to do this or that's going to happen. Or if we don't do this, this is going to happen. Can, can a prediction be true? An assertion of something that is going to happen, can that be a, an objective statement of truth? I think that's an excellent question, and in fact, it's one that I wrestled with a bit. Um, and you know, one or two of my early readers questioned whether or not I should talk about predictions in the book. The reason I did is that I, I work in communications. I write, I write um, messaging for businesses, um, for other organizations every day, um, and many of the messages that we write are predictions. We will do this, or they're, they're promises, which are also predictions of a kind. You know, if you do this, then we will do that. Um, and, you know, these aren't exactly facts because, of course, they haven't happened yet, but they're not falsehoods either. They are, you know, almost certainly going to come true. And I suppose one way to, uh, one way to put that is to say, well, think of a couple of really dead certainty predictions like tomorrow morning the sun will rise or one day I will die. You know, those are two predictions that I would, I would reckon that most people would agree are absolute truths. 
you know, the sun will rise, we will die. But they're not exactly facts. One can imagine kind of cosmic <laughs> kind of disturbances which might lead the sun not to rise, <laughs> not to rise tomorrow. We can imagine, you know, the perpetual, um, uh, what's the expression when people are put on ice, um, that, that might mean one might never die if you right. know the right technology was employed. So, so they're not facts, but they're, you know, they are true. They're truths. They're as close as one can come to absolute truth. So my view is there's a spectrum of, you know, of reliability of truth in predictions. And it would be foolish to just ignore any statement made about the future simply because we can't absolutely prove it's going to come true. Um, so much of what we do in life is, is, is based on predictions we make in politics, in business, and so much else. We act on these statements as if they are truth. And so that's why I've, I've, I've looked at those. And as you say, climate change is a particularly important area that I've written a bit about uh, the different predictions being made about cloud patterns in climate change and how that changes dramatically the, um, the picture of, of, of what might happen to global temperatures in the next few decades. Right. Uh, it's a really, really complex area of, of, of climate science, and it's something we really need to get our heads around if we're going to understand the likely impact on our environment. Right. Well, and I mean, it's certainly a theme through the book. I mean, these are complex and, and heady topics, but certainly presented in a, you know, in a straightforward way where I think, you know, people can, can navigate all of this. But what do you hope readers take from the book? Well, I'm really glad you said that because, you know, above all, I've, I've tried to make the book really readable and, and engaging and approachable. So it's written very much in the sort of Malcolm Gladwell style of using stories to illustrate the key points I'm trying to make. It's, it's definitely not a kind of hard-going textbook. Right. Um, what do I hope people take away from it? Well, I, I, I really hope it serves as a, as a kind of user's guide to the truth, to different ways in which people can use the truth constructively uh, in their in their professional lives with their families, you know, trying to get their kids to eat eat vegetables, for example, is a is a is a subject I look at um, in in one section of the book. Um, but also, of course, to 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 to, to be better prepared to understand and, and recognize misleading truths where politicians, where advertisers, where marketers, campaigners might use uh, forms of the truth which aren't entirely uh, representative of reality, let's put it that way, aren't entirely fair. Um, I, I hope that the book, through providing countless examples of where this is done, where this has been done um, in the past in all these different fields, people, readers, will become much better aware of, of, the, of the pitfalls and much more um, conscious of what they need to be looking out for if, if they come across a message, um, a story, a, a report that doesn't seem entirely right. Well, the book is called Truth, How the Many Sides to Every Story Shape Our Reality. Hector McDonald, thank you so much for the conversation here today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. There you go. Hector McDonald, his book Truth. So I, I don't think he's coming in and saying, look, here's, here's everything that's true and everything that isn't. So get to it, right? I don't think uh, this is a book that's trying to convince you that the certain things are true or aren't. Uh, but more, I think, how you need to, to approach those kinds of questions. So it is, it is quite interesting. I mean, it, it's, it should make you think. I think we should always be open to, to being convinced that what we perceive to be true maybe isn't. Uh, but not get to the point where we just believe nothing. Or we don't know what to believe. Or we live in this, this crazy, paranoid world where everything we're being told is, is a lie. 
Anyway, 403-974-8255. We'll have some time for your calls coming up after 2.30. A couple of things we'll touch on. they got the secondary suites debate happening down at uh, City Hall today. I know reporter Aurelio Perry is there. He's going to check in with Angela coming up after 3 o'clock. Hopefully, hopefully, this will be the last time we have to talk about a debate about secondary suites at City Council. That will finally change this process to take it out of City Council's hands. So we'll touch on that. Also, a um, bit of an upset, I, I think you could say, over the weekend in Ontario. Uh, Doug Ford, who had fought to actually postpone the PC leadership race uh, by another week. In the end, it didn't matter. Turns out he won anyway. So what does that mean for Ontario? We'll talk a bit more about that as well. 974-8255. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.